pastoral team over at Redeemer Tom Jimmer, and he is going to be bringing us the word this morning. So we are continuing in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the same text is being preached to Tom Jimmer, and I'm going to pick you up right now. We'll be back here in a minute. Cool. Good morning. Um, Daniel stole my intro of introducing myself as John from Redeemer Tom's River. So now I have to think of something else to begin with. But before we start, um, as Daniel mentioned, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to try something a little bit different. I want us to take about a minute, kind of like a thought exercise, to think through how we would articulate what it would look like to live what is commonly referred to as the good life. Like, what would that look like for you if you lived a life that was just your dream life? And I want you to think about that personally, and I want you to think about that for the church, um, whether it's for Redeemer Point Pleasant or just the church at large. What does it mean to live the good life? So I'm actually going to give you guys a minute to think through that. And if you want to even jot that down, what you would articulate as the good life for both yourself and for the church, and then we're going to jump into the text. And I'm not scared of silence. I'm going to give you guys an actual minute to think through this. All right, I'm going to pray really quick and then we'll jump in. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. And I pray now that as we look into your word, that you would speak to our hearts, Father. Convict us of sin and draw us nearer to yourself, Lord. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. So for those of you who are teachers, that was kind of like a do now. Um, and for those of you who remember school, that was kind of like a do now. Um, so I want you to keep that before you. What you would consider to be the good life. Um, for both yourself and for the church. And then we're going to look at the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. But before that, I wanted to read you a quote from a video that was up on um, Facebook and YouTube some years back. Between It was a conversation between Christian theologian Eugene Peterson and Bono from U2. It was put out um, by Fuller Seminary, and I would actually recommend it. It's about the Psalms, but Eugene Peterson said this. He said, where there's violence, there's got to be some kind of response. Is it more violence or less? And then he said, he was in his home, and he said this. He said, I'm glad we have a cross in every room of this house. But when I look at those, I don't think of decoration. I think that this is the world we live in, and it's a world full of crosses. And I just would like to spend my life doing something about that through scripture, preaching, and friendship. And then he says this, which was really something that got me. He says, now my years are getting shorter, and I don't have nearly as many left, but I don't want to escape that. I don't want to escape the violence. And there's two phrases that stick out in that quote. He said, there is a this is a world full of crosses, and then he said, I don't want to escape the violence. It's so interesting. Is that like the, the Bluetooth or whatever it is? I don't know. This is a world full of crosses, and I don't want to escape the violence. So I entitled the sermon this morning for the joy set before us, and this comes from Hebrews 12. 
And the entire passage reads as follows. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our fate, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And when we read a passage like that, we're confronted with Jesus who saw the crosses of this world, the sin, guilt, injustice, the pain, the suffering, the oppression that we see so often in this world. And and what Jesus did, he did not run from it, but he actually ran toward it. He engaged it. And so as we look at the Beatitudes this morning, we're confronted with a life that is marked by pain, that's marked by suffering, that's marked by frustration, that's marked by injustice. But in the same breath, that life that Jesus refers to as blessed is grounded in this eschatological hope, this off-in-the-distance hope that one day all of that negative, all of that pain, all of that oppression, all of that injustice will be reversed, and the world, as one theologian puts it, will be set to rights. The world will be set to rights. We're going to hear a beep probably another two seconds, right, because that's how it goes. So first things first, I want to talk about this idea of blessing, right? Because as we read through the Beatitudes, we see this word blessed, 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 blessed. And many of you have probably heard the Beatitudes either read or recited. Some of you might have even memorized it as as a kid, whatever the case may be. And this word blessed is something that often can be confusing, especially when you read through the Beatitudes themselves. So I want to talk about that word really quickly before we jump into our text. So this idea of blessed, what it actually means, and a more helpful translation might be happy, which if you look in your old King James Bible, it says happy are those, happy are those, happy are those. And and also that might be confusing too, because when we think of happy, we just think of like smiling and kids running around and they're just happy, but it's something that's a little bit deeper than that. And it actually refers to this idea of human flourishing. When we read, what is that? What's happening? Where's Daniel? I've got to figure this beeping out because it's distracting me. Yeah, what is happening? But I don't even have any Wi-Fi on me to detect. Um, So the point is, is that this word blessed actually means flourishing. What does it look like for humanity to flourish? What does it look like for humanity to live what we just talked about as the good life? And I want those definitions to start coming up in your mind, this idea of the good life. And then now I want us to read through the Beatitudes. But what I want us to understand what the blessings are not, they're not these top-down blessings that come from God, but rather they're these ground-up blessings, these these bottom-up blessings that result from a particular way of living one's life. Whether that's through habit or through just like wisdom, kind of if you read through the Proverbs, it's that kind of wisdom that we're looking at. It's this ground-up blessing that occurs through a particular way of living our life, living our life in accordance with the way the world was set up. So let's take a look at the Beatitudes. It starts off like this, and he opened his mouth in verse 2 of chapter 5 of Matthew, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So the first three Beatitudes, 
talk about something that we call a blessing, right? And it talks about the blessing that is put on a certain type of people. And the problem is, as we read through these Beatitudes, is that the blessing is spoken over the types of people that none of us would ever call blessed. None of us would ever refer to the person who is poor in spirit or the person who is mourning or the meek, or let's just read through all of them, the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and finally capping it off with those who are reviled and persecuted for their faith. We would not look at that individual and say, that's a blessed man or that's a blessed woman. And we would not look at a community that looks like that and say, that's a blessed community. But Jesus, as he delivers the Sermon on the Mount, tells us that this is exactly the type of people who are leading a life that will lead to human flourishing, that will lead to what we commonly refer to as the good life. And that's confusing for us as we look at that. So as we jump into this text, there's a, the goal I have in mind is I want to take a twofold approach. For those of us who are experiencing what is listed in the Sermon on the Mount, whether that's individually or as a community, we need to take heart. We need to take heart because we are actually nearer to God than we realize. We're nearer to God than we realize if we are experiencing what is being described here in the Beatitudes. But the second thing I want to, how I want to approach this text, is that those of us who are struggling to see where this list applies to us, then we need to take heed because we have placed far too much distance between ourselves and the brokenness of this world. So there's two worlds in which I want to approach this text. Those of us who are experiencing this list and the pain and the suffering of this life, we're nearer to God than we realize. Those of us who are having a difficult time understanding how this list relates to us, we have placed far too much distance between us and the broken of this world. So let's take a look. Let's jump in. The lowly, verses 3 through 5. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So those who are without, the poor in spirit, those who are broken. And Luke, actually, if we look at the Beatitudes, it actually just says, blessed are the poor. It doesn't have in spirit. And some people try to make a big deal about that, but the reality is, is what we're looking at is that someone who is blessed in this regard is someone who is poor, both financially and in spirit, because they're just broken. They don't have anywhere to go. And what Jesus refers to them is, blessed are those people, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who have entrusted themselves completely to the care and provision of God, what awaits them is the kingdom of heaven. Those who have entrusted themselves completely to the care and provision of God, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He then goes on, he says, blessed are those who mourn, or flourishing, or happy, or those living the good life are the ones who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I think of this idea of mourning, and I start to think of the world around us, and those of us, if we are following Jesus if we are loving God with all of our hearts and we are loving our neighbor as ourselves, 
then what we are going to experience is pain. Because what happens when you love another person? When you enter into a relationship with another person, you begin to experience whatever that person is experiencing. And I can guarantee those of us who are in any sort of relationship have experienced times in that relationship where the other person went through a difficult time. And what does that difficult time that the other person is going through do to you? It causes you pain. I know for myself, when I see my kids struggling with something, and this is always the easiest analogy for me because it just, it just so, it makes so much sense, right? When we see our children going through something difficult, what does that do to us? What does that do to us? You can even say it out loud. What does it do to you when your children are struggling with something and they're hurting? It frustrates you. It crushes you. It causes pain. And this is the type of posture that Jesus wants from us. He wants us to be in, in such close proximity to the broken and poor and frustrated and, and hurting of this world that it begins to affect us. That it begins to affect us and it causes us to cry out in mourning to God. I went through the Psalms with, um, with Redeemer Tom's River over the summer and a lot of what we talked about there was this idea of lamenting and what it looks like for the people of God to lament. And I think one of the first things that lamenting requires of the church is that we open our eyes to the world around us. And what we need to wrap our minds around as we're reading a text like this is that am I experiencing brokenness in such a way? Or am I, am I close enough to the struggles of the people in this life that it's affecting who I am? That it's affecting my, my disposition? Because the reality of this world, and I think if we all open our eyes and look around at this world, it's a broken place. It's a broken place. And for those of us who are not experiencing any sort of mourning, chances are our heads are in the sand, right? Because how can we not? I mean, if we simply flip on the news, there's so much to weep over as this world is going through turmoil. And what's so interesting about this text, as we look through the Beatitudes, is that Jesus himself embodies every single piece of the Beatitudes. Every single piece of the Beatitudes. And another thing for us to point out is that the Beatitudes are not this list of commands given to us, but rather Jesus is making observations about the world he's looking at. And he's saying to everyone that is listening as he's delivering this Sermon on the Mount, those of you who think you understand what it means to flourish in this world, I tell you you're wrong because what you're doing is you're living in light of the old order. But what he says in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what he's calling his people, his followers to do is to reorient their understanding of this world so that they are actually operating in light of the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of this world. And when we operate according to the kingdom of heaven, everything is flipped upside down. And we start to see with new eyes and hear with new ears. And what Jesus wants everyone to understand, the good life as you think of it, is not how heaven thinks of it. In fact, it's a completely different world that I'm trying to usher in. It's a world that is characterized by brokenness, by pain, by suffering. And it's a world that is characterized by associating with the broken the suffering, and those in pain, so that one day every tear might be wiped away. This is the kingdom of heaven. And that's precisely, 
and we'll get there in a few moments, how the kingdom of heaven entered into this world. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. He then says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think it's so interesting that this first three Beatitudes, because the way Matthew writes, he writes in what we call triads, so things are always in like threes. And this first set of threes is bookended by heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. Because the story of the Bible is heaven coming down to earth. That one day earth is going to be completely renewed so that all the things in the list of these Beatitudes are completely eradicated. And so he bookends it with heaven and earth, which is such an interesting thing. But he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those who have been scorned by this world, those who have been on the receiving end of that brokenness, injustice, oppression, whatever it may be, and they do not seek revenge. They do not seek revenge. Jesus calls them blessed. Jesus says they're the ones who are actually flourishing. Those are the ones who are nearer to me, nearer than you can possibly understand. Jesus is offering hope in the midst of what he is observing as a completely broken world. A completely broken world. And that should give us hope. That should give us consolation. That should give us a sense of, of peace because the God of the universe is on the side of the broken. He's on the side of the broken. And I don't know, I just, I, I start, I read through the Beatitudes and then, and then if you read through the book of Matthew, you begin to see how Jesus embodies all of it all of it. It's almost autobiographical as you look through the Beatitudes because he was the one who was poor in spirit. Remember him praying in the garden, crying out to his heavenly father, sweating drops of blood. He was broken. He was poor in spirit. He didn't necessarily want to do the thing that his father was calling him to do. Blessed are those who mourn. We see instances of Jesus weeping and mourning over his friends dying, weeping over Jerusalem as he looks out upon them because, because he is the one who's embodying this list. Blessed are the meek. He stands silent before Pilate as he's accused. He stands silent because he is the meek one. He is the mourning one. He is the poor one. The text continues. Verses 6 through 8. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who have mourned over the brokenness and pain of this life, they long for justice. That the world would be, as we said earlier, set to rights. Those who hunger and thirst for right. And honestly, a, a, a good way to read that word righteousness is to look at another term called justice. It's a very similar term. Those who hunger and thirst for justice. Those who hunger and thirst for what is wrong in this world to be flipped on its head and made right. 
those who hunger for those things to be set right, they will be satisfied. And, and the word that's being used there, they will be full to the point of almost vomiting. Like that's the idea, gorged with satisfaction. Like after Thanksgiving, when you're sitting there after the meal and you just feel horrible, but kind of happy at the same time, you don't really know what to do with that situation because like you're full because you ate enough turkey and you've ate enough stuffing and you've ate enough sweet potatoes and you're really full and then like pumpkin pie comes out and you're like, oh, well, I can probably fit some of that in as well because why not? It's Thanksgiving, I should destroy my body, right? That kind of full, that kind of full. They will be satisfied to the point where they have to sit on the couch and maybe unbuckle their belt. He goes on. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's this kind of upward trajectory, right? First they're satisfied, then they receive mercy, and then they see God face to face. But those who are merciful... Those who don't seek vengeance, again, right? We're seeing the picture of Jesus, right? Are we seeing Jesus in the Beatitudes as we march through? The one who is merciful receives mercy. Those of us who forgive, right? We'll actually see this later on as we look at the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? There's this sense that as we forgive, we are then forgiven. As we offer mercy, God gives us mercy. There's a reciprocation in how we live our lives that God is paying attention to. He's paying attention to it and he's saying that person, the one who doesn't seek vengeance, the one who doesn't punch back or hit back, I'm actually going to lavish mercy upon them. And sometimes that mercy won't be felt in the here and now. And that's the hard part about the Beatitudes because we're reading through this and we're saying this is the good life. And I want you to think of your definition of what the good life is from when we started a few minutes ago. And I want you to think of that individual definition and that corporate definition for the church, what it means to live what we commonly refer to as the good life. And I want you to start asking the question, is it measuring up with what Jesus and Matthew refer to as the good life or human flourishing? Are those coming together? Or are you starting to see like, maybe my dreams are a little bit different than the kingdom dreams? Because I know for sure, as I went through the same thought exercise, like I have certain dreams for my family and certain dreams for how my life will go. A lot of them include me buying a home and building a pizza oven in the backyard so I can make pizza every weekend. And then I read the Beatitudes and I'm like, I don't know, I don't see that there. Um, and again, not that, those things, not that those things are wrong, right? We need to be careful that we don't adopt this poverty theology as we read through the Sermon on the Mount. But what we do need to understand is that the brokenness of this world needs to affect us if it's not already affecting us. It needs to affect us. And what that means is that we need to put ourselves in proximity to brokenness and suffering. And when I say proximity, I mean we need to be near to the brokenness of this world. And we need to understand that that is how heaven comes to earth. By, by making himself nearer to suffering and pain to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Christian life is a calling to suffering. It's a calling to pain. It's a calling to making ourselves proximate or near to the brokenness of the world around us. Because many of us, 
and not all of us, but many of us growing up in a place like New Jersey and in maybe a nicer area of New Jersey, we are somewhat insulated from that. A little bit, and some of us may be less than others, but many of us are insulated from the brokenness of this world. And what Jesus is calling us to is to live a life that actually starts to rub shoulders with the brokenness of this world. And the interesting thing that he's saying is that as you look around the world, the ones who are broken are the ones who are actually nearer to God than they realize. And that doesn't mean they're Christians, but they're closer than maybe the ones who are, which is, which is why Jesus says it's really hard for a rich man to enter into heaven. Like he says that. He doesn't say it's impossible. He says it's really hard. And he says it's like a camel going through the eye of a needle, which is still like a weird, confusing sort of analogy. I don't get how that works, but it's really hard. Because as, as we talked about even earlier, like we do live in a world where, where when we have most of our needs provided for us, and I think, Dan, I think you prayed this when we were praying earlier, when we have most of our needs provided for us, we don't necessarily see our deepest spiritual need. We don't see it. And that's why Jesus is saying these people are blessed. Because they are just, it's just going to be easier for them to see that. He goes on. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He actually takes this from Psalm 24. And I'd like to flip there and just read it with you. If you want to go there, um, Psalm 24. It's a Psalm of David, and it reads like this. He says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and the, wor the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Right, there's the question. It's a great question that's posed by the psalmist. Who's going to get to go up to the mountain of God? Who gets to do that? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The pure in heart. And then he gives a definition. I love it. He says, he says, who do, who do not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Those are the people who will meet God face to face. Those are the people. And the bizarre part are those are the people who are probably experiencing the most brokenness now. And again, I want to stress this point. This does not necessarily mean that we are experiencing personal brokenness, but sometimes, and I think oftentimes, it means experiencing the brokenness of others. It's experiencing the brokenness of others and allowing that brokenness into our lives. Allowing that brokenness into our lives. He goes on a little bit further. Blessed are the peacemakers, verses 9 through 12, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for so, no, for, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And again, I see this term peacemaker, and I, and I immediately am drawn to the person and work of Jesus. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, those who are willing to enter into the middle of conflict to bring about reconciliation, regardless of the consequences. And he says, this person is a child of God. This is what it means to be a child of God. And what did Jesus do, right? He stood between creator and creation to bring about peace, regardless of the consequences, which the consequence was death on a cross. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, for they shall be called children of God. What it means to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, what it means to walk in the footsteps of our adopted Father in heaven is to walk a path where we stand in the midst of conflict as peacemakers, regardless of the pain that might be afflicted upon ourselves. Because that's the footsteps that Jesus walked on his way to Calvary when he was crucified. Those are the steps. And this is, again, these aren't commands. This is an observation that Jesus is making about the world. These are the people who are blessed, that are engaging in all the things that none of us really want to be involved in because, because it's risky and it inflicts pain upon our lives. And Jesus is saying, those are the blessed of this world. Those are the ones who are actually living what has been called the good life. Those are the ones who are flourishing. And I think what's really important for us to wrap our minds around, it's not so much even personal flourishing, right? Because when we do these things, when we live in a manner that reflects the life of Jesus, we become a blessing to the world around us, often to our own hurt, but we become a blessing so that maybe it's not us who are flourishing in the now, but certainly the people that are affected by the lives of, of the people who walk with Jesus, who are affected by the life of the church, they will experience flourishing in a way that, that they would not have if the church were not present. So often it means that others are receiving that flourishing and not ourselves. Again, I think of kids, right? How many times as parents do you serve your children to your own hurt? How many times do we serve our kids so that their lives might be better, but then we're on the suffering end of it? Like, just think of a kid with a stomach bug. Right? Like, just go there for a minute, because for some reason I bring up stomach bugs a lot when I preach, because I guess I've experienced them in my home in a way that's just unprecedented. But my point is, is that what do parents do when their kids are throwing up all over the place? Do they, do they run away? What do good parents do? You can even yell out an answer. They give him a garbage can, okay. <laughs> One night, I'll share the story, but it's a little gross. My kid, he threw up all over the rug in the middle of the night, and I literally just went into the room and rolled up the rug and threw it in the garbage because I didn't want to clean it. Because I didn't want to clean, right? I mean, who wants to clean that rug? Um, and then someone gave us another rug, so it worked out. Do we have another rug in there or is it no rug? It was a shag rug. It was not something you want to clean. No, you don't want to clean that. You don't want to clean that. But what do we do when our kids are experiencing pain? What do we, what do, we do? We, try to, we want to be in their place. Sometimes we can't be. But we do whatever we can to alleviate the pain, to bring about some sort of peace to their life. Even if it means us getting hurt or us contracting the stomach bug. We'll sit there all night with them and let them throw up into a garbage can while rubbing their back because, because they're our kids. They're our kids. We wouldn't dream of doing anything different. And Jesus is saying that, that's, that's what the church is. 
That's what the church is to this world. The church is to this world the father or mother sitting up all night with their kid as their kid throws up into a trash can. That's what we are in a sense, right? There's nothing, there's nothing like exciting about that. But it's the call of God's people because it was the call of Jesus. And we are to reflect the king. If we are to live in the kingdom, we are to reflect the kingdom. And as the quote I mentioned in the beginning of this sermon, we are not to escape the violence, but rather we're to lean in to the violence. We're to lean in to the pain, to the suffering, and whatever it is that's coming in around us. That's the calling of the kingdom. And the crazy part is, as we do that, we will be persecuted for will be persecuted for it. And, and he says that we're blessed and we are flourishing when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for justice, when we stand in between the brokenness of this world. We'll be persecuted for it. And then he says that, that we'll be blessed when others revile us and persecute us and utter, utter all kinds of evil against us falsely on the account of Christ. He says to rejoice and be glad for our reward is great in heaven. The entire section of the Beatitudes is grounded in. It's based on a foundation of eschatological, that means end times hope, that one day we will be with Christ. And I started thinking about this this morning. I had like a mini epiphany, and I was texting with Daniel, and I was looking at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and every single beatitude sits on a foundation of hope. Right? It sits on a foundation of hope. And then if you flip to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 24, I'm just going to read it. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who did what? Built his house upon the rock. And there's a song. I don't know if any of the, you know, the kid's song. The wise man built his house upon the rock. No? Cool. Um, I'll sing it later. I'll be here all night. Um, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. It had a solid foundation. And the crazy part is, is that the sermon ends in judgment and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall. So what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is that we begin with this foundation of eschatological hope, of end times hope, that we will be with Jesus and then we end on what life looks like with a bad or faulty or no foundation. What are we building our life upon? What is this church building its life upon? Is it building on what Gregory was even praying, on the kingdom of God? On the kingdom of God. Because that's where we will experiencing true, experience true flourishing. And flourishing will not look like what we might think it should look like. In fact, Jesus argues that flourishing will look like the complete opposite. How did heaven enter into this world? How did heaven enter into this world? Through pain, through suffering, through poverty. We read in the Gospels that Jesus was poor. 
He had nowhere to rest his head. When his parents brought him to the temple to, to, to put a sacrifice out for him, they chose the poor option. They chose two pigeons. That's the poor option in the law. Why? Because his parents didn't have any money. So heaven enters into this world in poverty. Heaven enters into this world in scandal. Jesus was born to a woman and she was pregnant before being married. In scandal, heaven enters into this world. In suffering, as Jesus marches to the cross. That's how heaven enters into this world. And that's what the Beatitudes are laying out. That the kingdom of God will will reflect the king. And that's how we will experience flourishing. And flourishing is not what we thought it was. But in fact, it is this otherworldly sort of flourishing that actually feels like pain now, but will bring us eschatological hope, face-to-face, presence of God sort of thing. And we will actually be the blessing to the nations that Israel was always called to be, but they failed to do it. And Jesus embodies it perfectly. He does it and he passes the baton onto us so that we might go and do likewise. And Daniel's going to come up in a few minutes and he's going to lead communion. And I want us to think through that as we're entering up to this cup and this plate and this bread, as we eat and drink, and we're remembering the death of Jesus the suffering that he underwent on the cross, the suffering that he underwent throughout his life. How might we reflect that in our own lives? How might we make ourselves proximate, nearer to the brokenness of this world? And for those of us who are experiencing the pain, how might we ask for help? How might we be honest with those around us and say, I'm broken and I need someone to come near to me? And the beautiful thing about the people of God, about the church, the body of Christ, is that we are the manifestation of God on the earth. We're the means by which heaven is entering in. So when we do come face to face with the brokenness, that we become the presence of God. And the bizarre part is that the broken people of the world are actually where we will see God most clear. And that's where we, who are of means, need to begin submitting ourselves to the brokenness of this world and hearing from them and learning from them because as the scriptures put it, pointed out, they're the blessed ones. They're the ones who are experiencing true flourishing. And we need to hear from that. And we need to learn from that. The virtuous life, the good life, is the life of Christ. And the life of Christ was a life of suffering. And as we suffer and as we enter into the lives of those who are suffering around us, we are sharing in the life of Christ. This is probably language you've heard from Daniel, that we share in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. And as we go about this life, to share in his life means both that we share in the suffering of his first coming and we share in the glory of his second coming. Jesus embodies every single beatitude. He's the truly human one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And if we submit our lives to the king of creation, then the Holy Spirit is already shaping us to embody the blessed life put forth in the Beatitudes. We need to be a people who see this world full of crosses and who choose to not escape the violence, but to lean into it. And then we will be 
glorified with Christ, provided, as Paul says in the book of Romans, we suffer with him also. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that is contained in it, Father, and I pray now that you would do that, Lord, that you would convict us of sin, that you would draw us to yourself, Father, and that you would provide comfort and consolation to those of us who are in this room who are suffering. To this church, Lord God, um, I pray for, for comfort, for peace, Lord God, and Lord, that we would be a people on mission for you, leaning into the brokenness of this world, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. This is a time of response to this sermon, I pray that